0: Has there been that time where you know you've been doing something and it's not what you were supposed to do? And just like you didn't want your parents in the room after you did something wrong, you don't really want to see Jesus right now. Shame. What do we do with that? What do we do when we fail? Because if you've walked with Jesus long enough, at some point in your life, you're going to decide to listen to your pride and what you want to do, and you're going to get off track, and you're going to do your thing instead of doing what Jesus will do, and you're going to find yourself in a place where you have failed. You failed. None of us like to admit that. None of us want to look at that, but here's what I'm hoping today. I'm hoping that as you hear what God did with Peter, after Peter failed, I'm hoping and praying that God will help you those moments when you fail to. Now, some of us, it may be something like we look at back over the last few weeks. I mean, it's the first day of a new month, and maybe you look back over the last month and realize, you know what? I basically lived this entire month as if Jesus wasn't really a part of my life. I wasn't spending time with him. I wasn't talking about him. I wasn't concerned about what he would think about what I was doing. I basically have just kind of abandoned him with the way that I've lived. Or perhaps it's something more serious. Now, when I say more serious, let's go ahead and say we know that sin is sin. All sin separates us from God. All sin causes a barrier between us and Him. But if we're honest about it, there are some sins that we commit that have bigger ramifications with our other relationships. There may be consequences that go beyond just kind of the normal. And so, in some ways, the consequences in this life may be more severe when we fail in certain ways than others. And I think we'll make that a little bit more clear as we go through. But what do we do in that moment when we realize that we failed? Well, let's look at John 21 together. As we look at John 21, what we're going to be seeing this morning is that when we get off track, in a simple way, I just want to remind you that no matter what's taken place, I don't know what you did last night. I don't know what you did last week. I don't know what sin has caused you to fall off track. But here's what I do know. Jesus is always ready to get you back on track. Always. Sean, you don't know what I've done. I don't. But what we're going to see here is the incredible, beautiful way that God gets us back on track. When we... We're going to make three different observations as we go through this passage. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And in case you're not familiar with the story, As Jesus was doing his ministry, he had about a dozen guys that were there with him. They were his closest followers and friends, his disciples. Peter was the leader out of those 12. He was the guy who'd kind of risen to the top. But Peter also was the most impetuous of the guys. He's the one that runs the fastest. He's the one who acts before he thinks, all of these kind of things. So the night before Jesus gets arrested, Peter had assured Jesus that he'd be willing to go to death for Jesus. But if you recall correctly, Jesus knew better than Peter did and said, you think you're going to go die with me, but the reality is, before a rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. We looked at that story back in John chapter 18, as we saw uh, Peter there uh, in the courtyard near where Jesus was being tried after he was arrested, and we see three times him denying that he knows Jesus, even being willing to call a curse on himself if he's lying about it. If you remember, there's that time when the rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter Peter's cut to the quick, and he realizes he has failed. He's absolutely failed. Now, since that time, we've seen some things take place. The disciples were hiding. After Peter and John went to see the tomb, they saw that it was empty. Jesus has appeared to them at least twice now. In fact, I think it is twice that we see. He's appeared to them on a couple of different occasions. Peter is there, but nothing's really been brought up about the whole denial thing. So when we pick up Peter this morning, nothing is, has made that right. Have you ever had a relationship where there was that elephant in the room? You said something. You did something. You know, guys, if you've been married for more than about three days, you've had this experience, okay? And if not, give it time, Um I tell every couple that I'm doing premarriage counseling with, there's going to be a moment where six months in, you're going to roll over and look at that beautiful thing you married and say, What on earth did I do? This was the worst mistake of my life. And that's okay because the person you married is not the person you thought they married. And by the way, that works both ways too, right? The person they thought they were marrying is not who you are either. And when those moments happen, there are times, all of us have had that moment where we've said that thing, we've done that thing. We may have known what we were doing when we did it, but that hurts just there like an elephant in the room. It seems like that's probably the case with Peter and Jesus. Jesus was there in the room with Peter twice now. He's, he's been there. He's seen him, but it's still not resolved. So how does Jesus go about this? Well, we're going to pick up in John chapter 21, and we're going to cover most of the chapter today, so there's a lot for us to read. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you, and if you don't have one, you're welcome to take it home with you if you need it. But let's set the scene a little bit, too, and fill in some of the gaps that John doesn't explain. Remember, John wrote his gospel last. The other three had already been written, so there's some things he didn't name that the other guys did because he knew that you had that, and so he didn't have to include it in his. So some of the things that we don't see is that uh, when we line up John's account with what we find in the other Gospels, we find that at some point, Jesus told the disciples to go back to a mountain in Galilee and wait for him there. We don't know exactly how long time has passed, but judging by where we find Peter and the others, it seems like they're in Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus when we pick up in verse 1, okay? Read verse 1 with me, okay? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathanael from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two of his other disciples were together. Now, what's Peter say? Verse 3, I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Some of you said, I did not realize that the Bible was so applicable to my life, okay? If you'll recall correctly, Peter and several of these other guys were professional fishermen before God called them into the ministry. God called them to, to walk with him in discipleship. Now, some of you just got a picture of like a $100,000 bass boat and some guy out there angling or, you know, whatever. Now, think more like Wicked Tuna. Like, all right, think like these guys are commercial fishermen. They're going out. You know, this is a livelihood for them. It's not just about winning trophies and catching the biggest smallmouth in the lake or whatever. This is a way of life for them. So as we're looking at it, Peter and the guys are there. They appear to be in Galilee, probably at the mountain. They're waiting for him. I'm resisting the urge to be able to put in a Princess Bride quote right here. But for those of you who know it, you you said go back to the beginning. Right, okay, see, I went there. All right. So they're back at the beginning. Most of Jesus' ministry has taken place there in the region around the uh, the Sea of Galilee there. And so they're back there in that place. And so as they're there, by the way, that Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. John had actually explained that back in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, we want to be careful here. When I've preached this passage before, I have made the mistake of reading into the text that Peter was somehow being disobedient when he went back to fishing. Truthfully, we don't know. We don't know why he did it. We don't know if he was just bored on waiting on Jesus, so he decided to go back to what he knew. What we don't know, there's nothing directly in the text that says he's being disobedient here. So all we know is Peter and some of the guys, as they're waiting for Jesus, they decide to go fishing. Now, I can imagine what this is like. Um, What is, I want you to think for a second. What is the thing that when life gets stressful, you go back to doing, right? Like for me, it's usually working on computers. Um, I I know some of you, that's like the opposite of everything. But like I really enjoy doing graphic design and web design and stuff. And I can tell when I start getting stressed out, I start doing a whole lot more computer stuff. You know why? Because the computer doesn't yell at me. The other thing that I like doing is weed eating. I love to weed eat, to de-stress. I'll go back to weed eating because then that way I know when I roll up on a yard, it looks bad. When we leave, it looks good. All right? That's just that's a stress reliever for me. What's the thing for you? Well, for Peter, it probably was fishing. So at this point, he goes out. What is the most frustrating thing when you're fishing? Not catching anything, right? Now, especially when you're a professional fisherman. This is what you do for a living. So there, let's pick this up. We don't know why they were back there. We don't know if they're frustrated or not when they started, but I'm pretty sure that they're frustrated by the time it was over. Pick up again in verse 3. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Fishing all night long catching a single thing. Keep in mind what happened with Peter. He's denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. Although he was one of the first of the tomb and was there when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples, there's got to be some tinge of shame in the back of his mind. He had abandoned Jesus at the worst possible moment, and now he can't even fish, right? Can you imagine the frustration? It's like, I'm not good at following Jesus, and now I can't even catch a single fish all night long. Now, if you've ever been around a frustrated fisherman, I can assure you the last thing that they want is advice, right? But what we're seeing here is Jesus is about to demonstrate the first principle that we need to understand when we fall on how to get back on track, and that is to remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Pick up in verse 4. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called out to them, you don't have any fish, do you? That's like fingernails on a chalkboard, isn't it? By the way, more accurately in the Greek, he actually said, my boys, okay? So it was actually a term of endearment that a rabbi would use for his disciples or something like that. They don't recognize this is Jesus, though. But so can you imagine you've been out fishing all night long, and all of a sudden some yahoo over on shore says, Hey, boys, y'all ain't got no fish, do you? No, sir, sure don't. No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. he told them, you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Can you imagine this? Like, I can picture it. They're sitting there. They've been pulling the nets all night long. Remember, they're using big nets. It's it's a manual process. Throwing the thing out, drag it back in. Throw it out, drag it back in. And they're tired, they're sweaty. It said that he'd stripped for work at one point, so he's down to his, basically his skivvies as he's sitting there getting ready to do this. And all of a sudden this guy says, hey, why don't you throw it out on the other side of the boat? Now, there's something that would have stuck with them for just a second. We'll get to that in a second. But maybe, just maybe, they throw the net out, pull in more fish than they can handle. Why is John, the one that we said over and over again, that the one that Jesus loved is John referring to himself? Why does he look at Peter and immediately say, it's the Lord? It's more than just the fact that this was a miraculous catch, which it was. You see, this is exactly what Jesus did when he called Peter. If you were to go over to Luke chapter 5, we'll put the verses up in just a second, but in Luke chapter 5, what you find is Jesus teaching there on the seashore. The crowd is pressed in so much that he can't address everybody from the beach. So he actually asked Peter if he can set in this boat, go out a little ways, and have a little bit more space to be able to preach to the crowd. So he goes out, and after preaching to the crowd, he says this to, to, uh, to Peter in Luke chapter 5. When he would finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and got nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. He's humoring him, right? When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. At that moment, just after this happened, is when Jesus tells Peter, Peter, no longer are you going to be fishing for, for fish, but instead you're going to join me in the work of being able to throw the net of the gospel out and drawing people into the kingdom as a fisher of people. Now, that sounds kind of manipulative. Listen, guys, it's not about manipulating people and fishing them in like some con artist. Instead, it's extending that net of the gospel and throwing out the beautiful truth of what God has done and then being a part of seeing him draw people to himself by drawing that net in for people to be saved. In that moment, Peter saw this miraculous catch of fish after he'd been fishing all night long and had caught nothing. And then he began to follow Christ. So what do we see happening here? Been fishing all night long, not caught a single thing. This guy from the shore says, put the net down on the other side. See what happens. All of a sudden, what he realized was this is Jesus. This is the same guy who did this before. Here, Peter, having failed Jesus sometime before and now being a failure at fishing, in the midst of his his failure, he sees the faithfulness of God again. Look at verse 7. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Isn't it just like Peter to get dressed before he goes to take a swim? Now, the reality is, like I said, he would have been stripped down to his undergarments at that point because that's how they worked in those days. And so it would have been inappropriate in his mind culturally for him to meet greet his rabbi dressed like he was. So he actually gets dressed and gets proper to go see Jesus, even though he's going to be dripping wet. Okay? So he plunged into the sea. Uh, verse 8, since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there, we'll come back to that in a minute, with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. By the way, you want good notes about why we know that the Bible was written by these guys? Eyewitness details that John includes. 153 fish, 100 yards from the shore. He's including eyewitness details because he was there that day and saw it. Verse 12, come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to him. He did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What do they see here? In spite of Peter's failure, Jesus was still faithful not only faithful to remind him of what he has done in the past, but think about this for just a minute. Jesus is the one, Colossians 1 tells us, by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. He is the one who holds all things together. He's the one who we saw in the garden who said, I am, and the strength of him declaring God's name caused people to fall flat on their backs. And yet what does he do? Breakfast. He fixes breakfast. Does it surprise you that the God of the universe would fix breakfast for his disciples? I'll be honest, it, it kind of does surprise me sometimes. I think uh, of the big things that God does. I I think of of his majesty and his glory. And, you know, like if you've been watching any of the the stars recently, you see four planets have aligned over the last month in this beautiful pattern. You see all of these things taking place. And uh, the, the way the old timers used to refer to it as the music of the spheres, as God's handiwork is just shown throughout everything. But then to think that that very same God was tender enough to fix breakfast for his disciples. See, when we fail, it's easy for us to lose sight of what God's done for us. But like Peter and the others, we need to stop and remember God's faithfulness. It reminds me of Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. He'd seen God work in an incredibly miraculous way, but a wicked queen threatened to kill him. Elijah ran away scared. He sat down under a tree and wished that he would die. And he was exhausted, so he laid down and he slept. The angel of the Lord, by the way, who is likely Jesus, woke him up, and next to where he slept, he found a loaf of bread and a jug of water. He slept again. The angel repeated the same thing before he sent him on his way. Isn't it incredible to see that the God of the universe is so aware of our frailty that he realizes that sometimes what we need is a nap and something to eat and some water to drink? Even when we fail. Elijah was running from this wicked queen. He had literally just watched God do one of the most incredible miracles of the Old Testament by sending fire from heaven that not only consumed the sacrifice and the wood, but the very stones that were underneath it. And the whole thing had been soaked in water. He had just seen God do that, and yet he's running scared because he's afraid this woman's going to kill him. What's God do? Give him something to eat, let him take a nap, These men have been fighting all night long against the wind and the waves and the fish and not catching a single thing. He knows they're exhausted. The last few weeks have had to have been pretty crazy for them with Jesus' death and his resurrection, his fear of the Jews, all of this. And so what's Jesus do? He reminds them of his faithfulness to take care of them by fixing them breakfast. Fixing them breakfast. See, when we fail, we need to remember... Nothing about him has changed. It's easy to forget the faithfulness of God, especially when we're caught up in the consequences of our action. We get caught in our own heads and we can't see a way out. But can I challenge you this morning that when you fail, that you need to first remember God's faithfulness in all the details of your life? Last week, we sang the song, Goodness of God. The chorus reminds us that all my life, you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good with every breath that I'm able to. I will sing of the goodness of God. There are times when you need to remind yourself of the goodness of God to say, God, you've been so, so good all my life you've been faithful. How do you know that? From the looks of things, most of you have a pulse out there. I don't know. There's a few that may be questionable. But right now, if your heart is beating, if your lungs are taking in air and expelling them, if you're body is working in any way, shape, or form, that's the faithfulness of God. Do you realize God doesn't have to kill you? God could just not make you live? See, God's the one who ordered the universe. God's the one who sustains. It's not that we live by default. It's that God keeps us alive. He's holding all things together. God could dissolve the very atoms your body is made up of. There's the faithfulness of God. In spite of your failure, look back at the times where you know God has used his word to comfort or challenge you. Think about the times where he's made made you uniquely aware of his presence. Times where you could almost feel God's presence with you. Remember the times he's encouraged you through an unexpected call from a friend or a gift you didn't think you'd receive or all of these things. By the way, a great way to remember the faithfulness of God is to write it down as it happens. Because depending on the depth of the failure you've experienced, there are times when the situation becomes so consuming, we can't think. You need to be able to go back to a journal, go back to a Word document or a note on your phone, and be able to scroll through it and say, I know God did this. I know God worked here. Because you may not be able to think much, depending on the weight of the failure. Remember His faithfulness. Now, maybe you're just starting out in your walk with Christ or your failure seems so overwhelming that you can't think of anything good that God's done for you. It's just become so consuming. It's got everything that you're focused on. That remind you of the greatest way that God has demonstrated his faithfulness toward us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a verse we quote often. God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. If you can't point to anything else, if you can't list anything, and I, I could help you sit down and I can point to all kinds of things that God's done in your life. I would love to do that at some point if you need help with it. But I can promise you this. The faithfulness of God was displayed by Jesus taking your sin upon himself while you were still a sin, sinner. And it goes on in verse 10 to talk about the fact that we were enemies of God. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. We sang it earlier, that all of my sin, not in part, but the whole, even the thing you just messed up on, the sin you just committed, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Now, let's think for a second. It wasn't going to go there, but let's do it. How many sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? Okay, first off, when did Jesus die on the cross? About what year? It's about 30 A.D., somewhere around there, 30, 33 A.D. Depends on, not, we're not sure exactly, but the fairly close, to about 30 A.D. How many sins had you actually committed when Jesus died on the cross? None, right? Okay, not a trick question. None. So that means all of your sins were future sins when Jesus died for them on the cross, right? So when you were saved, when you received Jesus, when you stopped trusting in yourself and started trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, which sins did he forgive? Past, present, and future. Now, here's what that's not. That's not a get-out-of-hell-free card where we can just go and do whatever we want. If anything, what that does is prove to us the unimaginable faithfulness God knew that 30 years, I've been been walking with Jesus for 30 years, God knew that 30 years after I would come to know Him, I would still struggle with things I say, things I think, things I do. God knew that I would still sin, even with all that He's given me, and yet First, we start by remembering the faithfulness of God. If nothing else, I know he's been faithful to die and be raised for me. It goes on. We must also, number two, rest in his restoration. Rest in his restoration. See, here he's eating with Peter and everybody else. They're all there on the beach. But there's more to take place. That breakfast was certainly a beautiful symbol of God's faithfulness, but there was a painful point there as well. I made mention of it briefly. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there. Now, that doesn't seem all that surprising because, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's a campfire on a beach. That doesn't sound significant. Here's what's significant about that. That term charcoal fire is only used twice in Scripture. The only other time that the term charcoal fire is used is in John chapter 18. Now the servants and officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. The only other time we have a charcoal fire recorded in Scripture was Peter standing there and denying his Lord. Researchers say that Smell is the strongest sense tied to memory. Now, we have to use our imaginations a little bit. We don't know for sure. But you gotta wonder. When Peter got to the shore, smelled that charcoal, saw Jesus. If that didn't take him back. The fact that this word's only used twice in the New Testament, I think there's something to it. Jesus not only reminds him of his faithfulness when he calls him, he also even brings him right up to the point of his failure. But look at how lovingly he treats him from here. Pick up verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't really know what the these is for sure. Uh, he's probably not in these being the other disciples. That doesn't seem to quite, quite fit the character. Um, more, he's most likely referring to the fish. Do you love me more than fishing? That's kind of the best way we can think about it. He said, yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told them. Verse 16, a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. And then he goes to 18 to talk to him some more. Now, some folks have debated about there's some different nuances of what happens in the Greek here and how significant that may be. It's up for debate. But I think it's a little bit more clear. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times did Jesus ask him if he loved him? For three denials, three affirmations. And I, I think the way we see that being significant is because it said it wasn't until the third time that Peter caught it. You love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I, I love you. Do you love me? And it says it Peter realized what Jesus was doing. There, next to a charcoal fire, he was gently restoring Peter by taking him back and letting him profess his love and commitment to Christ in the very way that he had failed. Do you see the beauty and the tenderness of this? At no point does Jesus stand back from the breakfast and say, I'm waiting. He would have had every right to say, Peter, you need to grovel at my feet. How dare you say that you're going to die with me and then abandon me hours later and deny that you even know me? He had every right to chew him up one side and down the other. He's Jesus for crying out loud. But what does he do? In tenderness, he restores Peter in such a way that it breaks his heart and allows true repentance to take place. It was Jesus who started the conversation. Jesus was pursuing Peter, even though Peter was the one who sinned. He took the initiative to seek restoration. That's how God's all worked. Remember, Jesus said that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. We saw last week that God showed us his love by sending his son to us, loving us first. So if you have failed, know that Jesus is ready and willing to take you back. He's taken the initiative. He's put this in his word. He's set all of this out for you. He's extended this offer of forgiveness to you. There's a lot of debate, like I said, about the specific words, but it seems like there's that third time. Jesus called Peter to tenderly confirm his love for Christ every time he had denied him. With each confirmation, Jesus is also calling Peter to obedience. Feed my lamb, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. He doesn't beat Peter at the head, over the head with his failure. He doesn't demand some kind of penance. Why? Because Jesus had already been beaten for Peter's failure. Jesus had already taken the penalty for Peter's sin on the cross and died in his place. So here's what you and I need to understand. This sounds really difficult for us to believe, but our response in repentance is rest. We want to try to dump things. We we want to do something to fix it. We want to do something to make it right. But the reality is, you and I can't. When we fail, there's nothing you and I can do to fix that on our own. All we can do is say, Jesus, I have proven that I am a sinner. I've fallen. I've fallen short of your grace. I've not been who you've called me to be. And all I can do is fall at your feet and trust that you really are gracious enough to forgive. And as we see with Peter's restoration, as we rest in the fact that he restores, we find that hope and that peace. Perhaps you've never had anybody in your life who's shown you that kind of grace. As Jesus confronted Peter in the gentlest way possible, Peter's heart was grieved for his sin, and all he could do was rest in the restoration that Jesus offered. There was no way to earn himself back into good graces with God, but he didn't have to. Because Jesus had already done that for him. See, when you and I fail and when we sin, that same grace is available to us. We need to let our hearts grieve and then let that grief turn our heart from sin and allow us to rest in his forgiveness. That's what 1 John 1.9, we go over this verse often because it's so foundational for us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now leave that up for just a second, Alex. That word confess literally has the idea of say the same thing as, okay? Agree with God. So if I agree with God about my sin, that means God's already said this is sin, right? And all I'm doing in confession is saying, God, you're right. This is sin. And you've called me not to live like that. You've called me not to think like that, act like that, speak like that, be like that. As I make that acknowledgement, I'm trusting that He is faithful and He is righteous to not only forgive our sin, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Do you realize that? So no matter what you've done today, no matter how you have failed, Jesus forgives and Jesus restores. Now, let me be real upfront with you about that. God can do all kinds of things. There are many times when God does remove some of the consequences of our sin and repair relationships in ways only He can. It's, it's absolutely beautiful to watch. But let's be honest that there are times where the, the nature of our sin causes things to never be quite the same again. God's not always going to repair every relationship. God's not always going to to put you back into this position or to allow this thing. He's not always going to remove every consequence. There are some things that when the line is crossed, just never go back to the way they were. But what always goes back is the fellowship that you and I can enjoy with Jesus. The resting in his presence. The removal of sin. So that relationship may be different. Your job may never look the same, whatever it is, that's impacted by your sin. But what matters is that the God of the universe still loved you enough to die in your place. He's still faithful. You're still his child. And the third thing we see, we can return to his purpose. Return to his purpose. We remember God's faithfulness. God, you've been faithful this way. You're still faithful through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And I realize I've done the wrong thing. I've sinned. And so I'm resting in the fact that through Jesus' death, I'm right with you. And so now we get back on track. We return to his purpose. Pick up again in verse 18. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt. and You'd walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. You see, that restoration is not for you to go back to fishing. The restoration is not for you to keep doing the same things you've always done. The restoration is to get you back onto his purpose for your life. Now, I want to be real clear with that. His purpose for your life. There's a beautiful human moment that John records next. Verse 20, so Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. Remember, that's John, the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who's the one that's going to betray you, right? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? (laughs) Isn't that just like us, right? Peter has failed Jesus miserably. He's been restored. Now Jesus has given him a glimpse into his future and told him, one day you're going to be arrested and be executed for following me, but follow me anyway. And the first thing Peter does is, what about John? Isn't that just like us? I love Jesus' response in verse 22. If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. As for you, follow. Follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that the disciple wouldn't die. Yeah, Jesus didn't tell him that he wouldn't die, but if you want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? I love that. John has to explain. Everybody thinks I'm not going to die. It's not. That's not what Jesus said. He just said, you follow me. Ignore what's going to happen with John. If, if he's still going get back, it's fine. Right? God has a unique purpose for your life. We've said it before. If you have a pulse, You have a purpose. You are created by God as a unique individual with unique gifts, talents, abilities, and opportunities that he wants you to use to be able to grow his kingdom as you serve him and carry out his will on earth. Now, when we fail, there are times when that adjusts the opportunities that we have in the kingdom. But we never lose the purpose for our life. See, the ultimate purpose for your life is that God would make you, number one, look like Jesus, to conform you into the image of his son, Romans 8 talks about. The other thing is, in Ephesians 4, we learn that we're to be growing up into the full maturity of of what it looks like to follow Christ, okay? That's God's purpose for my life. That's God's purpose for your life. If you've been wondering about what the purpose of your life is, it's so that you can look more like Jesus and be more like Jesus in every conversation, every attitude, every avenue of life. But here's the thing. Not all of you are called to preach. Not all of you are called to be teachers. Not all of you are called to go to college. Not all of you are called to work in the medical field. Not all of you are called to be missionaries. Not all of you are called to be married, to have kids, whatever it is. I don't know. But whatever God's called you to do is what He's called you to do. Your purpose and my purpose, end goal, is the same. But it may be that I die for Christ, and maybe you live till he comes back. Maybe vice versa. Who knows? But we know in this, as we rest in his restoration, we got to get back on track and return to his purpose. I've done a lot of reading in recent years. Uh, there's a book. It's by a secular author, um, but it's called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear. It's a good book for help on breaking bad habits and creating new habits. One of the things that they talk about in books like that is never fail twice, right? So if, let's say, you're trying to lose weight and you're trying to watch what you eat. So if you have a bad dinner and you just eat everything in sight, then the next morning at breakfast, don't just sit there and say, oh, well, I guess I'll start over on Monday. But never fail twice. Start with that next meal. In an even greater way, we need to make sure we do the same thing in our spiritual life. Don't sit there and say, well, you know, when I go to church on Sunday, I'll pray and we'll get back on track. We'll we'll try to hit it next week and try to do better. Start today, start right now. Return to his purpose. By the way, with with Peter, remember that he went on after this to preach and 3,000 people got saved one day. He led the church in Jerusalem. He got to be the one to have the first true full Gentile convert to take the gospel outside of the nation of Israel for the first way in in a big way. He got to write books that are a part of the New Testament now. He failed miserably. But as he remembered the faithfulness of God, he was able to rest in the fact that Jesus had died and taken all of his sin on the cross. So he was able to get back on track and literally change the world as he returned to his purpose. I want to challenge you to do the same today. Go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes this morning. I don't know what you did this week. I don't know how you failed. I don't know where you've succeeded. But I do know this. God loved you so much that he would send Jesus to die on the cross for you. And now he offers the opportunity for you to walk with him. If you've never come into a relationship with Christ, all of this can be true for you. The forgiveness that Christ offers is not yours until you enter into that relationship with him. It's there, it's available, if you'll just respond. To confess that you've sinned, you need a savior. To turn from following yourself to following him. That's how he's been faithful. So rest in the fact that he can restore you today as you live out on purpose with him. Now, maybe may be here, though, and you're a believer. You, you claim to follow Christ. But in ways that nobody else in this room may know, you failed. You almost didn't come today because you were so ashamed of what's happened. Remember the faithfulness of God. Rest in the fact that he has died to forgive you, to cleanse you from all of your sin. So confess it. Turn to his purpose. Get back on track. I want to give you a minute to do business with God, and I also want to do uh, one of the things that we mentioned we were going to do this week is we recently finished our Discover CBC class, which is a, uh, a class for, for folks who are interested in joining the church. So in just a minute, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue with our head bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you've been through Discover CBC and you're ready to, make, uh, to plant your life here as a member, I'd encourage you to come front come down during the invitation as we have some time to reflect and we'll present you guys to the church, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus is good enough, kind enough, gracious enough to restore. Would you convict? Would you take us back to that charcoal fire? And then as you do, would you help us to rest in your restoration? We want to honor you. We want to be like Peter, able to say, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So God, help us to return to your purpose together. Give us grace to respond as you lead.